Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. Ultimate OE provides safe, unique hunting-based experiences for passionate hunters and outdoorsmen. From hunting stone sheep in the mountains of British Columbia, rutting moose on the gravel bars of the Yukon, to chasing roaring red stags in the highland of Scotland, Ultimate OE's paid overseas experiences are designed for hunters, by hunters, to maximise enjoyment, learning and experience. For more information, it can be found at ultimateoe.co.nz or flick us an email, give us a call, we're always happy to talk through what kind of hunting adventure would be best for you. G'day and welcome to The Educated Hunter. This week I had a great conversation with Nathan Watson. Nathan is the Partnerships and Insights Manager at the Mountain Safety Council, or MSC, and I managed to catch him in his hotel lobby as he was passing through Vancouver. So hotel lobby, not the ideal place for a podcast, so if you hear a bit of banging and crashing and doors opening and the odd kerfuffle with the microphone, I apologise, but that was the only space available um, as he was coming through town, so we made the most of it. I met Nathan a number of years ago, uh, funny side note, he's actually married to my cousin, but professionally met Nathan while I worked at the MSC for about a year during 2016, and during that time we obviously developed a, a professional relationship, and we worked on a number of projects together at the MSC, which we will talk about uh, during the course of this conversation. So this is a, an important conversation to listen to, I think. I enjoyed it and I think it may um, give a lot of people some insight into the how and the why things have changed at the MSC, um, the how and the why things are changing when it comes to firearms in New Zealand and why as hunters and outdoorsmen we should all have an interested stake in what happens. This was a really interesting conversation, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Nathan Watson from the Mountain Safety Council. All right, thanks for uh, rushing down <laughs> to meet me. We're in Vancouver of all places, and I've managed to catch up with Nathan, who's here on what? How would you describe your current trip? Uh, I guess you could say I'm on a bit of a an international learning journey. Um, come all the way from NZ with the support of the Winston Churchill Fellowship Grant. Um, basically, come to check out how various places in Canada and Washington State do outdoor safety prevention, um, mixed with a little bit of a, a personal, I guess, opportunity to get out and experience the outdoors here and, and take all of that kind of experience and learning back to New Zealand and um, apply that in the context of my work and the work of the MSC. Okay, so what is your official title at the MSC these days? Uh, so I am the Partnerships and Insights Manager, so that basically means um, I sit across all of our work with um, with partners, so they're all the external organisations and agencies that we that we work with, um, from 
government departments like Department of Conservation, uh, ACC, right through to um, places like Tourism New Zealand, AA. Um, yeah, basically anyone that we're doing any external work with. And then our insights platform is really the evidence and the knowledge and the um, the understanding of what's going on in the outdoors, both in terms of participation and, and incidents in terms of what's going wrong. So I sit across those two platforms and we've got an awesome team that um, that kind of power that whole engine. And it's in the last, I'd say, what, five years, three years, MSC's been going through some pretty major changes and obviously I've been um, involved in some capacity in that change. It's uh, over a year now since I've been gone. But, yeah, it's gone quick. Um, I was there for a, a short time, not a long time, but I'm so I'm relatively privy to the changes that sort of um, – the MSC underwent over that period, but I sort of feel like a lot of the general hunting public in particular may not um, fully understand what's happened. So can you give us the Cliff Notes version of how MSC has changed in the last few years and why that change was necessary? Yep, absolutely. This is something I've talked a lot about since we've been through it with, with various people, um, as you can imagine. And uh, and we obviously missed you, Matt, and that year's gone incredibly quick. I can't believe it. Um I guess the, the Cliff Notes version is for, we've been around for, well, I think it must be about 53 years now, the organisation, and in the first uh, 49, 50 years of its history, uh, didn't really go through any fundamental change, and as society changed and demographics changed and how people access the outdoors and where they go and why they go um, and where they get their information from before they go, obviously changed a huge amount in those 50 years. Um but the organisation fundamentally didn't really go through much incremental change. And so it got to a point where to stay relevant um, in this new day and age, we had to make big change. Um, and that's really hard because change is, is not easy. And, and in most cases, there's a bit of a resistance to it. Um, so it was quite a big review process. And we involved um, all of our council members, which there are 27 different organisations um, at the time, all of our branches and volunteers and and really went through a robust process to go, well, if we're going to change, um, but within the same mandate, so improving public safety in the outdoors, then um, what do we need to change into? What do we need to do to be the most effective? Um, we needed to increase our, our relevance and our reach. And the, um, the previous, I guess, operating... Um, platform was about training people so taking them into the hills and getting them cold wet and hungry which fundamentally is a very very good thing but you just you can't train enough people to have an impact on a population scale um, you know we've got four and a half million kiwis we've got nearly five million international visitors coming into the country a large number of both new zealanders and international visitors go into the outdoors whether it's tramping hunting you know mountain biking trail running whatever it might be um and the sad reality is that the vast majority will never get any training. So how do you increase their knowledge and competency uh, and understanding or even make them aware that they need to think about their own personal safety? Um, how do you do that if you can't take them away on a training course? Um, so we still support training, but we just don't do it. We let right. others and, and we promote outdoor safety through other mechanisms. Right. So... There's two pretty major changes there. A is how people get the information. I know back in, you know, perhaps our parents' um, generation, people would go away and, you know, if you want to do tramping, you'd do a tramping course and get better educated. Um, but these days, particularly you touched on it, the number of 
tourists who come and do any number of our walking, tramping, hunting, even as a, a big thing for tourists to do these days, how do you reach them? So in terms of MSC, who are you responsible for, I guess, educating and making safer? Yeah, so our, our responsibility, um, it's less about uh, the international versus New Zealand. It's because both categories apply to us. It's about anyone that, that recreates in a personal sense, um, in the outdoors, on land. That's our space, basically. There are other organisations um, in New Zealand that do the water space and the air space and those other um, environments. So if it's public recreation on the land, um, whether you're a New Zealander, whether you're an international visitor. So when you say public, it means you're not paying somebody to provide the experience for you, like a guide or a... Um, company is that correct? Correct. Yep. So the commercial space has has others. It has WorkSafe, uh, has the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, um, has the likes of Tourism Industry Aotearoa, um, who are all involved in safety in that. Um, so for us, it's about 100% public safety and um, and prevention. We don't do any of the search and rescue either, which is sometimes a little bit of a, a thing that people don't quite understand. There are other organisations that do the search and rescue police. Uh, rescue Coordination Centre, Lansar. Uh, so we focus entirely on the prevention. If we can't prevent something going wrong, then they're the guys and girls that sweep in and pick you up. Right. Okay, so your job title, you mentioned two things. One thing was partnerships and the other thing was insights. Can you touch on what both of those two terms mean in terms, as far as your job capacity? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think probably the best one to start with is insights because that's really about understanding and for us, it's two sides of the coin. So it's it's the participation. Who's going out? Where are they going? When are they going? Why are they going? And really understanding the, the person. Because if we understand the person and what motivates them and their behaviours and their attitudes and where they get information, then that's, that's uh, knowledge that we can use to basically get the prevention message to them. So it's about eliminating the guesswork of who the participant is. Um, because... That's changed and it's always changing and there's always different types of people doing it and it's not necessarily, you know, when you've got a picture in your head of who's a hunter and who's a tramper, you'd be surprised that that's actually sometimes not the case as as to who's actually doing those activities. Um, So you need to know about the participant and then, um, you know, potentially more important is actually what's going wrong, Um, understanding what's causing incidents. And, And I'll kind of refer to incident as as the broad term for injuries, search and rescues, fatalities, you know, like a negative outcome. Yep. Um, so you need to know what's going wrong, you know, where is it going wrong, when, um, and if you can, why. And when you understand both of those sides of the coin, then you can start to paint a really clear and accurate picture of how you're going to prevent that. Otherwise, it's, it's, um, it's like firing a shotgun and, you, you know, it goes everywhere. Yeah, and it's very hard to keep, <laughs> one's personal opinion or inflections or I guess a, um, yeah I don't quite know exactly what I'm saying but keeping your own personal um, ideas of who and how it's going wrong out of the messaging if you don't have anything else to draw on so where do you get that information from yeah so I mean uh, the comment you made there we we look at that in terms of like anecdotal evidence you know that's it's not, the word I'm looking it's for. not a um, it's not a number it's not a um, it's not a fact or a figure. It doesn't mean to say that it's it's wrong or not right, um, but 
we first and foremost go with um, you know actual actual fact, actual data drawn from one of our data partners. Um, and, I'll, and I'll answer your question there directly in just a second. And then, but it's important not to dismiss that, um, dismiss that anecdotal evidence because it's really once you have the, the numbers, if you like, the facts and the figures layering in, kind of the personal understanding of that is really important. So, okay, we're seeing this issue. We're seeing a you know a trend of increasing um, search and rescues in this particular place at this time. You can only kind of answer part of the picture you've then got to go out and actually talk to people that that are seeing that and experiencing that and and line the two up so it's really important when you're developing the full picture of insights that you don't you don't just go with numbers and you don't just go with personal feelings and emotion because um, in isolation they don't tell the full picture um, yep so in terms of where we how we develop insights and where we get that data from um, that really comes back to almost the partnerships bubble and so we work really closely with the likes of ACC and we're super lucky in New Zealand with the, um, you know if someone's in an accident whether it be in the outdoors or not um, that data is collected via ACC so we have a um, ethics approval and, and an agreement with them we can access all um, outdoor recreation uh, injuries um, with search and rescue we work with uh, New Zealand police and the rescue coordination centre so pretty much if you call up on your cell phone and say you're in trouble you're, you're going to get the cops looking after you uh, or coming to find you and if you um, click off your locator beacon uh, then that gets picked up by the rescue coordination centre which is run by Maritime New Zealand and they'll um, they'll coordinate that search usually they'll you know, send in a chopper for you so both of those two partners uh, provide the search and rescue data and then there's quite a job to connect those together and uh, eliminate double double ups yep. um, and then the, the third and final uh, data partner if you like in terms of the, the what's going wrong side of the coin is the Ministry of Justice and their Coronial Services Unit and so um, basically um, all the coroners, coroners in New Zealand uh, when there's an accidental or unexpected uh, death will investigate that whether it's in the outdoors or not um, and we have access to all of those fatality records so you, you you bring all that together and you can imagine the mountain of stuff that sits behind all that um, and then there's quite a, a, a detailed process of going through that and understanding it and you, you've been through that in the past with work we've done obviously so you, you know what that's like um, but actually the, the key there is not so much the the analytics work we have to do um, and we partner with others to to power that machine if you like but it's the partnerships that fundamentally keep that data access open and it's about having that trust and, and respect from them and understanding that when they give us confidential information that it's not you know shared or published inappropriately. So there's a lot of work that has to happen behind the scenes to ensure that those partners are uh, understanding, if you like, um, and see shared value. That's critical. Yeah, and I, it's funny that you should say that because I uh, had a, um, let's call it a conversation with a, a third party the other day who were quite um, angry at the MSC because they weren't, quote unquote sharing the information that they had and there was certainly a general lack of understanding that that information that you know the MSC has access to is you know got through a long process of back and forward between partners and there's confidentiality clauses and there is an element of trust you simply can't be handing out information onto anyone that you know decides to flick you an email yeah, that's right, and um, and we get those requests from time to time, and we'll basically our principle is that we'll share everything we can, 
you know, everything that we're allowed to share, any of our findings that we develop um, that are published in a, in a public sense are available. We probably, when we do an insights project, we, you know, we probably publish 10% of our findings and the rest of that sits um, within a system, if you like, that we'll share with our partners. So um, a good example is Department of Conservation. You know, they, they have access to everything that we develop and we only make some of that public. Some of it is um, not relevant, not maybe not interesting to the public. Um, uh, maybe it, it needs more than a publication to explain it. So it needs the partnership, it needs the conversation, and we're working together on prevention stuff all the time. So it's part of our, of you know how we operate with them. Um, but yeah, we can't we can't simply just give things out. We can't you know we have a lot of stuff that um, could potentially identify people. Um, and yeah, you just simply can't do that. And if we did, we'd lose everything. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's really interesting. I think that um, that gives a general insight into you know what you do and and a bit of an insight into what MSC does now. But you're talking about messaging and, and, and insights projects. What's an example? Let's go with insights first. What's an example of a sort of an insights-centric publication that's come out in the recent future that I don't know maybe relevant to hunters yeah so um, gee it was probably over slightly over a year ago now that we we released a hunter's tale um, but before that we our first publication was uh, called there and back and if, you know you can find it on the MSC website it's publicly available and that was really a, a broad kind of state of the nation and it became abundantly clear very quickly after 180 pages um, that there was a whole lot more that we could tell, and so we decided we, we knew we needed to do these activity deep dives, if you like. So a hunter's tale was the first one we did, which um, which you know was a deep dive into the hunting space and really exploring um, what's going on there. Again, participation and the and the what's going wrong, and you know the hunting sector, if you like, and you know this better than anyone, Matt, is um, got a bit of emotion and a bit of politics behind it, and and lots of passionate. You know, brilliant people, um, but it is one probably more so than some others that have a lot of anecdote and a lot of the emotion behind it. And so, we decided to go with the hunting space first to try and, um, I guess, put out something that was was factual, it was based on on hard data collected via the sources I've explained, um, and present that clear picture. Uh, but also, we knew we could do some prevention stuff in that space you know we knew that there was opportunity to essentially um, reduce hunting incidents um, so that was a brilliant piece of work and and we all loved it and it was you know once released I think it was met with a, a lot of positive energy um, it's amazing how often now I see people you know I watch the Facebook and online forums New Zealand hunting stuff because it's it's beneficial for us to keep our heads in it and it's amazing how often now people will quote that document yeah yeah it is and it's really exciting to see it sort of builds a like a body of its own and that's what we wanted because you know we had no agenda there there was no intention we hadn't written the story before we did the work we had no idea what the numbers were going to say they they were what they are what they are um and so and there was never anything like that so it was always stories versus stories and great stories but no one actually ever had the clear fact and none of those um, data partners had ever connected their data with someone else's, you know, and and ACC, for example, had never ever looked as deep into the hunting space as what we have, and that's not a negative to them. They've got you know bigger fish to fry up the list, so to speak. 
so we could put all that together and, and that's our role to do that um, and it is brilliant to see it continue to be quoted and even now I was reading an article just before back in NZ obviously the duck shooting season is about to kick off um, and you know the media are quoting uh, Hunter's Tale which you know, came out as I say kind of over a year ago and, and they're still using that now um, and when you look around the world there's and, and it's part of what we do is, is kind of canvas what's happening internationally. I mean, me being here in, in Vancouver is part of that. Um, no one is, no one else is doing anything like that. No other country has anything like that. Some some places in the states and even here in Canada, they have some very location specific insights, but there's no real national picture of what's happening. Um, yeah, and it's and it's great to use as a cornerstone for people to start talking about because I, I sort of feel and I, I see a, an undertone of of passionate hunters of passionate hunters who who really care about this stuff they care about you know the animals in New Zealand they care about the environment they care about other hunters you know every time we have a you know failure to identified misidentified shooting in New Zealand like everybody else my heart breaks a little bit more it's another family um, affected on both sides I mean you and I have both and I've sat in rooms with um, you know both victims and guys who have been responsible for making the mistake and it's the up ripple effect it has on their families on both sides is is staggering like it just blows your mind so every time it happens it you know I die a little bit inside so active debate I think is a healthy thing and it, it promotes awareness and there's a lot more work to be done in that space to sort of understand why we do it more than any other hunting nation in the world at such a high rate you know and again you can throw as many anecdotes and opinions on that as you like and you know god knows i have plenty but um, at the end of the day unless we can really understand what's causing the problem to start with it's going to be a very difficult one to fix but in saying that a hunter's tale has shown me that there are people who are thirsty for that knowledge otherwise it just ends up in a well I think it's because of this or I think it's because of that and someone will throw it out an outlandish number and then suddenly that document will come up and someone will say well actually no this is what's actually happening and I think that's a really positive thing and as far as MSC is concerned you're not just working in the hunting space you're also doing tramping mountain biking yeah, I mean, if it's a land-based outdoor recreation activity, then you know we've probably got something going on. Um, tramping's the, without question, the biggest participation activity. Um, some of the latest participation figures coming out from the likes of Sport New Zealand, um, who are one of our partners. There, so they're a government um, agency, and they do the the actual survey and collection of that. You know, showing some really really high numbers. Um, I won't throw out a figure because. Our publication will come out soon and I'll probably get it completely wrong because I've got a whole lot of figures going around my head. Um, but there's a lot of Kiwis that head out into the, the bush and the hills, you know, tramping or, or day walking um, in, in that sort of um, front country and back country context. Um, and, uh, and, tra- and hunting's, in comparison, a lot, um, a lot less uh, popular if you like. But what we know about hunters is they go really regularly and that's something that we uncovered in the Hunter's Tale is that they, um, there are a lot of very active hunters. So when you actually, um, 
instead of looking at the number of people, if you look at the number of trips or the amount of time spending hunting versus tramping, um, things start to, you know, kind of the picture changes a little bit. Um, but they're, they're definitely the two big, you know, outdoor recreation activities in, in, in New Zealand. And then mountain biking's just increasing with popularity all the time, um, particularly in the in the kind of that backcountry context. Trail running's big. Um, and then you've got, the you know, the mountaineering um, and your backcountry snow sports, which are all part of our space. Because right. that's part of the reason you're here too, is you'll be speaking to a few of the avalanche type setups. Yep, definitely. Yeah, so I mean, North America, um, and you know, you know, particularly Canada and and uh, some of the sort of northern western parts of the states have always been in that avalanche space and probably leading from an international perspective. Uh, lots of lots of people recreating in the avalanche terrain, and some quite staggering numbers of of um, of incidents uh, every year um, so they've sort of been at, at some of the forefront if you like in terms of that technical forecasting space um, but the keys is how you know how you communicate to that to the public in a way that they they understand and can act on um, so I, yeah I am I'm, I'm here catching up with Avalanche Canada and the Canadian Avalanche Association and then when I'm uh, dropped down across the border into Washington State um, with some of the, the team there that are forecasting um, out of Bellingham for like the North Cascades and Mount Baker. Um, so looking forward to that kind of international transfer of information as well because there's some stuff that they can learn from us, I believe. Um, we're just about to launch a new avalanche advisory site in, in NZ. So if there's anyone, um, you know, any hunters heading out into any, that kind of mountainous terrain, then that's something. It's snowing like a bastard at home at the moment. Is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> I've just been um, focused on what the weather's doing here, to be honest. Um but yeah, what do they say? Snow in May never stays, so I guess we'll see what happens. Um, but that's good. So we're about to launch a new site. We've overhauled the the old Avalanche Advisory, and like that's a really good example of a tool that traditionally um, was about mountaineers and backcountry skiers and snowboarders. But trampers and and hunters are just as exposed to avalanche risks as as those that are going backcountry with skis and snowboards. And um, you know, we're lucky in touch wood, if you like. We haven't had um, too many trampers and hunters come to grief from avalanches. We've definitely had them, um, but the risk is there every year. And that's that two, I guess, uh, groups of, of participants that we're trying to get that message out to more and more frequently. Well, um, what is the avalanche advisory? What is it? So if I'm a hunter and you're telling me it exists... How does it work? Yep, so avalanche.net.nz is the URL. Um, basically what we run is a system and we have 12 regions around the country. Um, so if you think of uh, the likes of Arthur's Pass, um, Northern Fiordlands, uh, Mount Aspiring, Araki Mount Cook, Nelson Lakes. Um, if you're in the North Island, um, Mount Taranaki and, and Tongariro National Park. So there's, there's 12 regions and each region has its own uh, professional avalanche forecaster so really highly trained uh, expert who is out in that environment you know on a daily basis and basically they're using uh, field observations and uh, observations of other professionals in, in that space to create a, an avalanche forecast which is a, a prediction it's a bit like a weather forecast it's a prediction of the danger rating for the future you know, 24 to 48 hours, depending on the time frame that they give it. Um, and they'll give it a, a rating, um, uh, one to five, low to, to extreme. Um, and basically that gives you a, um, 
at a macro level an understanding of what's the danger going to be like is it low um, is it moderate you know is it high or extreme um, and that's a simple sort of color graded system um, so a person who knows nothing about it could look at it and sort of get a general idea if I was planning on going hunting in this area and I looked it up and it was all bright red then I might change my mind yeah definitely if you're getting if you're getting bright red or, or um, lots of orange and, and yellow you really need to be thinking twice about heading into that space um, is, is there anything in New Zealand in terms of avalanche conditions that like a that cause it to be dangerous is there anything that's sort of New Zealand specific or like the the bad thing you know what is the um, avalanche conditions in New Zealand that are most common that makes it dangerous um, I think in NZ we've we're, we've got some unique um, weather patterns that the likes of continental North America or Europe or you know Asia don't experience so um, you know Highly changeable weather, lots of wind. Um, we go from cold temperatures to warm temperatures, you know, rain to snow all the time. So you've got a really changing environment and the snowpack is very heavily affected by the, the weather, basically. Um, so it, there's a lot of a lot of different things often going on. Um, so it's a complicated It's complicated, it, yeah. And, and look, I'm by no means an avalanche expert myself. Um, one of the things that the guys often talk about is uh, when you're getting a weak layer, you know, trapped within the snowpack, and that's really the the, the red flag uh, amongst others. But but if if I had to pick one, um, when you get a, a weak layer that that's trapped in there, and then you get snow build up on top of that, and then you get the presence of a you know human on top, a hunter, you know, chasing chasing something up over the ridge like that, and then crossing a, an open snow slope, you know, thirty degrees, kind of perfect avalanche angle. Um, and uh, that weight basically, you know, breaks that weak layer, and the snowpack above it, you know, ends up sliding away. Um, and I mean, the best skill you can you can really develop is is the awareness of what is avalanche terrain, um, and learning how to to determine um, safe travel, safe route selection. Um, you know, prior to that, it's, it's about making the decision: should you even be there? And that's a critical one, and that's what the the avalanche. Um, uh, avalanche.net.nz basically um, assists you to do um, and then of course if you are going to go hunting in the environment and you've made the decision that yep I've got the skills and competency you, you know, you've got to have the gear um, you've really got to have a, a transceiver shovel and a probe um, so does your mate you're hunting with um, if you're hunting with others and of course you've got to know how to use it as well um, that's critical don't don't take it if you, yeah. <laughs> if you can't use it, it <laughs> so it's a complex hard. one and you know if you're going to be spending a lot of time in that alpine environment hunting I think that's a great one where I'd really recommend you know go do go do a course get some basic training do a one day avalanche awareness course so MSC used to do those who does them these days that's right um, oh look there are quite a number of, of providers actually um, I for fear of, of not naming them all I won't name any um, <laughs> but if you jump on our on our website um, and just go to the training uh, or courses section navigate to there from the, the the bar menu bar at the top you'll find a list of of all of those that run um course material that we've we've developed basically right and then and they're great at what they do they're run by avalanche professionals and even you know if you can only if you can only do a day um you're going to come away with a bunch more knowledge and probably the the biggest thing you'll learn is that there's so much more to learn that you don't already know um but look i'd say to people you just got to trust your kind of trust your judgment in that environment don't you and be thinking about yeah absolutely you know. I mean it, it can happen and I've you know 
as Nathan alluded to, I had um, a hand in the, the hunter's tail. So I've, um, you know, there are guys who have been hunting that have come to grief in avalanche, and it's um, so we're not immune to it, absolutely. And sometimes it's not sort of in the areas or the time of year to even expect it to happen. You know, early early spring hunting um, is probably one of the more dangerous times in the in the areas that we hunt. Um, so yeah, don't be blind to it. It's a good thing to upskill yourself on. So while we're on the subject of training, and I know um, this is a question, I guess that's you know for complete context, I know the answer to these questions because we work together. But I know for a fact that, and I hear it misquoted and misunderstood a lot in the general hunting and even outdoor space in New Zealand. So. A hot topic than it has been for probably two or three years now, certainly as long as um, I've been involved with the MSC, um, is the topic of firearms and the firearms training that you have to go as a New Zealander in order to acquire your firearms license from the New Zealand Police. So let's firstly talk about um, why MSC is involved in hunting or firearms training whereas we're not involved or MSC is not involved in any other type of training yeah that's a very good question because we often get asked that why do you do that training and not others I think the 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 very unique thing about the hunting space and the firearm space is that if you're going to hunt you know legally with a firearm you have to have a, a firearms license and there's one system basically to achieve that so it, it acts as a funnel and it's a unique opportunity and it is only one off but it is unique in the life of that hunter or firearms user that you can essentially educate and influence their knowledge their you know awareness you've talked about awareness um, and you don't have that in any other recreational activity um, if you're going to drive a car legally then you're going to get a driver's license there's an opportunity to educate that person if you're going to go tramping or mountaineering or backcountry skiing, there is no funnel, you know, there's no um, doorway, so to speak, that people have to go through where you've got a small window of time to impart some knowledge um, and to use that opportunity to essentially, you know, improve their safety. So the firearm space and the hunting space is incredibly unique and that's uh, very, very valuable in the eyes of a prevention organisation because, you know, you simply can't engineer opportunities like that anywhere else. It's, it's, um, it is the, the gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, an absence of, you know, and we're, we're in Canada right now and to hunt in Canada you have to do, in BC it's called your core training, um, which is specifically a, the training that leads up to um, being able to get a hunter number and therefore your hunter's licence. Um, I've got a, a friend here in Vancouver, an Irish lad who's sitting his training at the moment, and it's, it consists of four nights, so four two-hour sessions, um, before he sits his test. So that's the amount of time that if you want to hunt in Canada, you've got to spend the time to do that. So that, and during that period, there's a unique, well, there's the opportunity, a lot of that material is specifically safety-orientated and how to hunt Whereas in New Zealand, we don't have that. We rely solely on our mentors and people who teach us to hunt to impart that knowledge. So if I understand you correctly, 
the only time you get an opportunity as a prevention organisation, therefore your intention is to make hunters safer in the outdoors when they hunt, is to try and give them some of that information when they come through the firearms gate. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and of course, you know, in the past that's primarily focused on, on the firearm, um, and rightly so because it's a firearms licence. Um, but we know through our insights that in the hunting space, the firearm, the use of a firearm isn't the only um, mechanism or action that's causing incidents. So it's an opportunity, regardless of, of the content or the curriculum, it's a chance to um, to influence that person basically. Um, and they only do it once. You know, we have no system in New Zealand uh, yet. Uh, where, well, I shouldn't say yet. We have no system in New Zealand where... Um, you come back and, and redo that training or reset. Um, you obviously have to revalidate your firearms license, but it's an administration process. Um, and so that's it. You've got that single opportunity, and that could be when, you know, young 21-year-old and they're hunting right through to their, you know, 60, 70, um, and they've had that one chance. And, and, of course, there are other opportunities along the way because coming back to that insights, we, we have a pretty good understanding of of hunters in a general sense, but also when you break down that very broad demographic, um, or shouldn't they're not even a demographic, that broad group, that broad tribe, if you like, you can start to identify other things within there that hunters do as to, in terms of a, a channel to intersect with them. But you're never going to get them all, you never get them in that captured environment where they're engaged in the firearms process. So um, it's very important to us, and, and obviously police as well, because they fundamentally they um, own... You know they manage the firearms license legislation in New Zealand. They they um, have the mandate for the firearms licensing process. So changes to that or requirements that are set are set by police, not not by MSC, not by any external organisation. It's a police uh, police set that you know they own that. So. Most of the people listening to this who've got their firearms license would remember when they sat their firearms license, you know, for me, be 10 years ago. No, be more than that, 15 years ago now. You know, Getting old, man. Yeah, it's happening. Um, you know, sitting in the, in the room at the police station with an, an MSC volunteer, you know, who were unpaid volunteers who used to come in, you know, once every couple of weeks and or once a week. Some guys are doing two a week um, and teach the course content and they'd administer the test. And that test would then be presented to your arms officer and you would go through the process of getting your licence. And then they would do the necessary background checks, inspection of your firearms, safe, etc. Correct. Yep. Interviews, all that kind of stuff. So we're, we're, most of us, I assume, are pretty um, familiar with that process. But over the last few years, that space has been a, a relatively rocky one and it um, aligned with the change process that was happening at MSC at the same time. So just run us through a, a, a brief history of what it was um, and then what it went to and then the recent developments where the police have announced within the last, what, two weeks? Yeah, or, or possibly slightly, um, could, could even be a month now, but roughly in the, in the very um, recent past. So, yeah, I mean, you've, you've described the process that, um, yourself and probably most people have, have been through and that um, that system if you like has existed now for a number of years we're talking you know largely decades um, 
again, I won't try and put my finger on exact year that came into play, but but um, well before our time. Um, and, you know, it's a system that has achieved some great things. And there's been a huge number of passionate, dedicated, uh, really committed volunteers that have given, you know, years to that. And it, it wasn't too long ago I was handing out some certificates to some guys who were re- retiring. Um, 20, 30 years they've been involved, and that's exceptional. Um, but again, it's sort of an example of something that hasn't really evolved over time. It's largely stayed the same. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to review and change things, but all the reasons I talked about at the start, so much has progressed, so much is different now. And and as I said, police own that space, and uh, you know they're the ones that can really talk to all the reasons why. But you know, I think there's been a realization that they uh, there can be more being done in this day and age. Um, the system needed a, a refresh. It needed a review. It needed a, a question needed to be asked. You know, is it was it as robust as it could be? And for us, the big thing was about the consistency of experience. So taking nothing away from the brilliant volunteers in an individual sense, what we didn't have um, was uh, the consistency of, of, of that experience. So if you did a course in Kaitai versus a course in Bluff, um, the, the learner was going through something that um, could vary significantly and there wasn't really any oversight and moderation of that of that process, so to speak, in terms of the, the delivery and the testing Um and so that needed to be looked at, you know, we, and, and we were delivering it. And so that was us putting our hands up and saying, actually, we, we can do a better job. Um, wasn't saying the volunteers aren't good enough or they're not doing a good enough job. It was actually us saying the management of that system, the delivery of that system, the, the support network that made it possible could be better. Um, and we did our own review. Well, you know, we, we travelled the country, we met with hundreds of people from the firearms community, the instructor space, and, and brought in all that feedback and all those thoughts and feelings. Um, and then that went to police, and then that basically was police's decision. And so they went to, um, off their own back, um, went to a public tender process through the government system online and put that out to, to anyone that wanted to basically um, lodge a tender application. Yeah. Before we get to the, the new system, I think it's worth mentioning too that, you know, when I when I was at MSC, I dealt with a lot of the instructors and as you say, they were all great, fantastic, dedicated, knowledgeable, really good guys, right? But the, the biggest thing that caught me in terms of um, some kind of system to um, moderate or make sure that the experience was consistent it really wasn't there so from a hunting point of view when I looked at that I thought okay there is a risk here that someone is going to go and get their firearms license the instructor for whatever reason may not be up to par you know something might happen he may get the three questions wrong on his sheet that you are not allowed to get wrong, you have to do a reset. And the instructor might, in that one case, because he felt sorry for him, turn a blind eye and pass him anyway. Now fast forward a year when that guy then goes into the bush and has an accident, makes a mistake, um, heaven forbid somebody dies as a result, and somebody then goes back and looks at that process then as hunters and firearms owners, it's suddenly going to become 
will be thrust into the public eye that the testing could be better. And there's not really any excuse when you're talking about, you know, the parallels between, say, getting your driver's license and getting your firearms license. One could argue that owning a firearm is probably a greater responsibility than having a driver's license in many ways. So the process of getting your firearms license, you know, was not necessarily easier, but way less regulated and way less um, oversight into how it was delivered. So that to me was the real kicker from a hunting slash firearms owner perspective that as a community we were essentially exposed by that lack of oversight. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with everything you'd said there. Um, And, you know, as I said earlier, it was about ensuring the consistent experience, ensuring there was that moderation and that robustness and, and sort of not leaving things to chance. You know, there were things that could be done to improve the system now and that was was obvious so um why wait on that you know what i mean make the changes make it more robust um make it fit for purpose and and kind of relevant to this day and age and as you say you know you, you the outcome is a firearms license the the right uh, or the privilege to use a firearms license the privilege to go hunting so the necessary steps to go through to get that should be um it should be it should be tight. It should you should have to demonstrate that you are competent and, and capable. Um and I think the general public expect that. You know what I mean? You can get behind a car and drive, but you've got to really show that. Well I think the general public would would want to see if New Zealanders are, are using firearms in the outdoors or in any sense that they've actually really demonstrated they're competent at doing so. Um and not letting it get to a situation where we might see in other countries where um the storm comes afterwards and then you react to it. It's about getting ahead of it. Um it's this the you know, this this maybe maybe my comment is biased and some people will think so, but this should be seen as a very good thing for the firearms and hunting community because every new license applicant and that's you know, we need to remember it's new license applicants. So if you've already got it, you don't you're not being asked to go through it again. Um they're gonna be the bar they have to achieve has um, has gone up, and it's not gone up in the sense it's got harder, but there are less holes. <laughs> you know, we've plugged some of the sieve. Police have plugged some of the sieve. Um, that's the key here as well. We get a lot of uh, I'll, I'll use fingers pointed at us, um, saying you know MEC is doing this, and and, and there's a whatever drivers, the motivators are X, Y, and Z, but. Um, and I know we're going to come to this with the new system, but police own it. Police set what the standard is. As their delivery partner, we uh, we don't determine where the bar is. We deliver what's expected to the public. So it has, you know, I was involved in the review process for the... Um, and the, I guess consultation with the current MSC instructors all around the country. So um, I was involved in that, and then it went through, as you say, a tender process. And the police have, as you say, a couple of weeks ago, a month ago now, announced what and what is different. So if you are 17 now listening to this, wanting to get your firearms next week, what's going to be different? Um, so... As of the 1st of July, the new 
the new system begins. So if you're, you know, booked in to do a course or going to do a course before the end of June this year, 2018, then the current system, if you like, the old system, if you like, um, exists. So we still have a fantastic bunch of volunteers delivering uh, as they have been. So as of 1 July, with the new system, essentially, and a lot of the finer details are probably irrelevant to this conversation, but um, essentially there's now two steps. So the first one is a theory, um, and like uh, in the old system, there is a test, a theory test that you have to complete uh, with X number of, of questions, and, and the test is being looked at now. So the whole process is being is being um, updated. So the number of questions uh, from old to new might change. Um, some of the questions might change. Um, but kind of detail aside, there is a theory test that you have to, to go through and pass. If you pass the theory test, then you can move on to the practical let's call it a session for want of a, of a better word. Um, and, and this practical session, and this is the, really the new part if you like, instead of having an instructor demonstrate you know, a, a rifle to you or a, a shotgun to you and you sit there at a table watching, you now actually will be required to hold that firearm and demonstrate to the instructor and to your peers because it will be done as a group that you can competently hold a firearm and demonstrate a range of basic you know, movements and actions and and um, kind of procedures, if you like, with that firearm. So you're actually being required to show that you're competent handling a firearm in front of someone who's you know, competent to to essentially test you on that. You don't have to fire it. There's no live firing. Um, this process isn't about improving um, the accuracy of your shooting. Um, so there's no live firing involved. Um, and that practical session, you know, probably about two to two and a half hours approximately um, with uh, with a group, as there was in the past. Um, and that'll be the second step in the process. And then you'll still need, there'll still be the requirements for vetting and there'll still be the, you know, the, the references and, um, uh, and the safe and all of that sort of stuff. But it's really the, the, I guess one step, if you like, now becoming two. Um, well, it was often a um, criticism of the current system was the fact that it was a, you know, you could sit up the back and not say anything and, you know, write your name in block capitals on the test and bumble your way through the multi-choice and congratulations, you got your firearm. Um, and the demonstrating of, it may not sound like much, but just to put some context around it, the training that we do with our ultimate OE boys who are coming and girls who are coming to Canada to work in the hunting industry, we deliver the Canadian firearms license in New Zealand. So we have a Canadian instructor that comes to work with us in New Zealand to deliver the Canadian firearms license training or PAL, Possession Acquisition License. And it's anywhere from nine or ten hours worth of delivery and training it's very comprehensive but the feedback that we got from the young guys um, who go through that training is you know it's, it's much more comprehensive than what they did in New Zealand and they are very positive and pro that level of training um, so a lot of the time the feedback that we got from them um, was that it is something that they would like to see as hunters as firearms users in New Zealand um, transpire so I think that the changes are very positive 
Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it's um, not about, I guess, removing people's ability to access a firearm. It's not about, you know, making it harder for the sake of it because, you know, police or MEC or anyone wants to see kind of gun ownership um, be reduced in New Zealand. It's really about saying, well, if we're going to have a license process and we're going to uh, give out a um, something at the end of the day, which means someone can you know, use a firearm, then it's about making sure that it's as robust and as high quality as possible. And, and like I said at the start, for us that was about the consistency. It's about the ability to make sure that no matter where you go and you go through your practical, you're having the same experience. Um, and there's always going to be a bit of variation in terms of the way uh, an instructor might um, bring their own flavour and feeling you know, to that. But um, the curriculum essentially needs to be delivered to the same standard um, everyone needs to be able to demonstrate a competency to the same level and that you're doing so in a, in a professional environment um, you know at designated locations um, you know not in a living room or, or um, you know sort of lifting the standard if you like of the whole process um, and that's been a, a big you know driver for police um, when they put out their tender documentation which as I said earlier anyone could could apply to um, that was a, a big part of what they were what they were looking for. Okay, so who is now doing the theoretical testing and who's delivering the practical testing? Yeah, so MSC uh, was successful in the tender process for the practical side of things. So that's being delivered um, by ourselves in partnership with police. So everything we're doing in that space is, is with hand-in-hand uh, hand with police. You know, we don't come up with the curriculum ourselves. We don't, um, we don't get to do whatever we want. Um, there's a, a, a set requirements there, so to speak. Um, and then in terms of the theory, I believe police are working on the finer details of that kind of as we speak. And um, we'll be releasing some more information on that on that side of things. Uh, but ultimately, they they have the ownership for the whole process and the different um, parts within it. So, um, yeah, they'll be they'll be confirming those details pretty soon, I believe, in terms of in terms of the where and the how and and the finer points. And so, and there's a lot more of those finer points that will be coming out over the next um, next couple of months as we head into into July. Awesome. All right. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, and I think that's a change, as you say, for, for the good in firearms owners and hunters in New Zealand. Um, I, people, in, when something change, have the ability to, well, people in general don't like change. So when something changes, their knee-jerk reaction is to jump on it and say, oh, we don't need to change it, don't change it unless it's broke kind of mentality, which to me is just bullshit. Um, my opinion, my humble opinion, and this is only my opinion, but I think the changes are in the right direction and we're long overdue. Yeah, and look, look, one of those, you talk about change, and I agree with you, change is often met with um, a sense of nervousness, and so then you know we need to demonstrate um, the positive benefits of that and I guess the experience from the people that go through that and, and how they share that experience with others will help to determine the, the kind of the positive vibe and... and um, uh, and chatter amongst new firearms users but like just quickly one of the new things that is coming is the ability to, to book a course online so if you want to go and do a practical session you can actually go online and there'll be a dedicated website for it and you can actually see um, all of the scheduled courses for the 12 month period um, so there's no um, you know sort of guesswork or there's no ringing up a number and hoping that there's something running in your area at some point in the near future you'll be able to to look at that and you'll be able to make a choice you know do you go to the 
the, the session down the road in two weeks' time, or do you need to drive a little bit further and get one uh, next week type thing? Um, space, um, obviously, um, to be determined. But, you know, so it's it's giving people, everyone's got a mobile these days, right? It's giving you the ability to sit home, go home on the bus and, and bring up the booking uh, system. Um, can I get a course? Yeah, if anything, it's going to make firearms licensing more accessible to people, I think. Well, from that respect, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's going to be um, 48 delivery delivery locations across the country. So that is a reduction in, in the current. Um, but what you won't have is the the small, you know, in the living room uh, type arrangements, which you, you get now. Um, and those 48 locations have, um, have been picked to be strategic. You know, they're about putting um, licensing venues where people uh, are living, where people are working, where people are already going um, for their everyday needs. Um, and it's about looking at where the licensing demand is coming from as well. Like that's sort of part of that insight space is going, well, you know, actually we don't need four or five venues in this area because um, demand says actually we can consolidate that. And by consolidating the number of instructors and the number of venues, you're automatically contributing to increasing your consistency and quality and, and a, a better um, experience all around. So um, looking, for, looking forward, you know, we're really looking forward and there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to make that happen. So the instructors themselves are no longer going to be volunteers. How how is that going to yeah, work? Yeah, correct. So we're recruiting right now for um, for instructors. So positions are open and available to, to for anyone to apply, um, and they will be uh, paid contractors, and those contractors will be um, uh, locked into a schedule for the location or, or locations they'll be delivering in, um, and they'll be uh, they'll be basically paid uh, two hundred dollars. Um, per session um, for for delivering to up to 18 people so you know, at the moment volunteers are doing similar kind of thing obviously just the, the theory and the, the demonstration um, classroom type environment um, as volunteers um, but yeah we're moving so that's that's another part of that change moving to a, a paid contractor model like a couple of things that are changing there you know if you're going to be a contractor then there's a job description um, and then there's a, an employment contract. Um, and so the expectations around that role, um, I guess, have increased. And um, you're essentially treated and will be treated, you are one of the MEC, you know, wider kind of staffing family. Um, and volunteers were all, always part of that wider family. There's no question about that. But um, it's just shifting, I guess, the... Um, shifting the system that sits around that, shifting the way that we, um, the kind of the expectations of being uh, an instructor change and then um, obviously how we manage that network changes, uh, being contractors. Um, ultimately for the people heading along to do their practical, um, obviously they'll notice some differences if, if they had been through the previous, but Ultimately, they're going to have a, a passionate, dedicated, committed person in front of them um, who's achieved a really high level of competency and they've had to demonstrate that through an, a job application process. And then there's the ongoing professional development and the ongoing training requirements that they need to meet. And, and that's part of the moderation and quality control. So there's a lot more that will be going in behind the scenes and, and, and those contractors will have to continually meet uh, those requirements to maintain that role. And that's a, another big sort of part of the change. 
um, in terms of those expectations. Yeah, and I can imagine you'll get a, a, a mix of those who have been instructors in the past who want to make that change and um, you know go along with that so they can continue to deliver and then there'll be a whole cohort of um, experienced firearms people that uh, will put their name forward for one of these jobs and um, depending on when we put this put this podcast out into the open I'll, I'll include a, a link to that um, job description I had it sent to me today by Adam at the MSC he just thought that maybe might tempt me to come back <laughs> <laughs> good on you Adam keep yeah, trying <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not sure why it was it was me and a bunch of other people so I think it was more of an FYI than anything but anyway it made me giggle um, <laughs> right so that's all well and good and obviously if if anyone has any questions or um, ideas about the firearm stuff is there anyone at MSC or what would be the channel to sort of reach out yeah um jump on our website mountainsafety.org.nz and, and go to the contact us section and you'll find the contact details and you can just um, connect with us that way um, or specifically uh, you can contact uh, Adam Adam Smith who's in the partnerships advisor hunting role so that was um, your old role, uh, role Matt um, and so that's adam.smith at mountainsafety.org.nz um, and you know no matter who you get at our end we'll, we'll put you on to the right person all right, so there's one other thing that I wanted to touch on really quickly, and I, I won't keep you too long. I know you've got to get on the road first thing tomorrow and travelling with a – how old is he? Is he 15 months. 15 month old. Yeah, yep. It's not a not an easy feat, so I won't rob you of your, um, <laughs> let's say, hard-earned sleep. But <laughs> Thank you. There's, there's one thing that, uh, that I guess a lasting impression that has stuck with me, and it's part of the reason we – have sort of been motivated to start this podcast and and start some of these conversations and um, I guess without filling your brain with any of my impressions or thoughts in your opinion or can you describe to me how hunters as a whole are represented um, on a on a government's political playing field in the arena that you run in so in context you know my year that I spent at the MSC I spent a lot of time in meetings with the Department of Conservation New Zealand Police you know Landsar all of these players in the arena and you know they obviously have pretty obvious representation of what they represent in the outdoor industry and they all have loose ties to hunting and hunters how are hunters represented in this day and age in that arena uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I think like any group, there's it's a varying scale. You know, there's your there's your hardcores at kind of either end, and so there's your sort of extremists, your your um, your guys and girls out there who are kind of viewed as I don't know how do I describe it. Yeah, have a lot to say, have a lot of of, of input feeling and emotion but maybe at times not necessarily grounded in any kind of fact or um kind of evidence you know um um a lot of a lot of theory and scaremongering and and kind of generating um hearsay um, i'm not sure if i'm making much sense with this but there's that sort of that end of the spectrum and that that's possibly no different to um uh any group of recreational users, and and then you get your your kind of your level headed and your 
and you you know you just you're good keen kiwis who are into hunting for whatever reason and i think that's very much the overwhelming majority of new zealand hunters are fit into that you know they're just they're just good down to with people that go hunting right and and they're portrayed in that way as um as your everyday new zealander but it's it's always the the very minority the very small noisy few that tend to get a lot of the airtime or take up a lot of the, the conversation space and they're they're often not reflective of the general uh, hunting population. cohort population. And so you hear the same things or you get the same kind of issues being raised and raised over and over again, but I'm not sure that's actually reflective of the hunting population and what they're thinking and feeling. And I think most people out there and probably a lot of people listening to this, you just like the outdoors you love to head out into the bush and, you know you just happen to be keen hunters you're also into everything else that most kiwis enjoy yeah. you know and yeah I'll, I'll save you there you you would have made a good politician <laughs> if you didn't work for the msc <laughs> and i understand where you're coming from and without naming names or even naming organizations i guess the takeaway of what i was going for and aiming for with that question is that um the general public or general hunting public, the most of us, the majority, the 95%, we are guilty of a lot of times not getting involved in any kind of political debate or level. And we are represented by a small number of people on a political governance level and they, quote unquote, speak for all hunters. So if you're listening to this and you don't know who that is, then that's a problem. I know who it is, Nathan knows who they are, but they are a small number and they are not incorrect, they have given a lot to hunting, etc. But my question would be to anyone who's listening, if you don't know who that is, um, then you're going to have to ask the question, you know, is your opinion or the opinion of you and your hunting friends and your hunting community really getting communicated at a governance level? So who's sitting at the table for hunters? in these meetings and if you don't know who that is then i suggest you do some digging around or get in touch with us um, and find out a way that you can make your voice heard all right mate well i won't keep you any longer um thanks again for coming down taking time out of the evening it was my own fault you've been here for three days and it only just sort of occurred to me today i should try and get you on tape so (laughs) good things take time matt it's my pleasure my pleasure it's been great chatting i'm glad i can uh, share my thoughts and kind of hopefully give people a, a bit more of an understanding as to some of the MSC world and the changes and um, you know share you know, maybe a little bit behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see or hear from um, outside of this type of format so yeah and I'll, yeah. I'll put a link to the website where you guys we can find all the free resources which are all great you know, free safety orientated resources, hunting and everything else that involves terrestrial recreation in New Zealand. Um, so that'll be in the show notes. But other than that, cheers for taking the time and uh, yeah. Awesome. Travel safe. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram at theeducatedhunter 
Or finally, join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and catch you on the clearing.